The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff. I'm the host of the podcast, also Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary, and I have with me in the studio our president, Dr. Joseph Piper Jr. Dr. Piper, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much, Zach. It's always good to be with you. Today we will be running through our monthly or we try to make it monthly, segment of Faith and Practice, where Dr. Piper addresses questions uh, sent in from our listeners to the podcast. You could do that through our website at gpts.edu slash gpts-podcast, or you could do it through Facebook, Twitter, uh, social media in any form. You can even call the seminary or email me if you'd like to submit a question. We love hearing from our listeners and handling the things that are on their minds, frankly. Before we get started, I will pray, and then we'll share some announcements from the seminary. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that you have set aside for us to think on the things of God. We thank you for our listeners and their questions. We pray that you, even now, would be at work in our answers and uh, working in Dr. Piper to answer cogently and clearly and biblically. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. A couple of things that I want to bring to our listeners' attention. I found out that a rather large uh, evangelical Reformed uh, conference being hosted to the south of us in March has just sold out. So if you're thinking about coming to a theological conference in March, uh, particularly March 12th through 14th, I urge you to check out gpts.edu slash conference and consider coming to our conference, because though our enrollment is rising day by day, slow and steady, we are not yet sold out, and there is about one week left for the early bird uh, registration. Dr. Piper. Given the theme. The theme this year for the 2019 Greenville Seminary Spring Theology Conference is Amazing Grace, celebrating 400 years of the Canons of Dort. So we are celebrating, recognizing, uh, triumphing in the quadricentennial of the Synod of Dort, at which the doctrines of grace were codified, crystallized, articulated, I don't know, in response to the remonstrances of the Arminian party. And Zach, we've, uh, we will have two historical lectures by a very able man, Danny Hyde, but we've listened to our attendees, and we're actually going to have seven sermons at the conference covering the doctrines of Dort, as well as the pastoral use of those doctrines, and that Calvinism is more than the five points. Exactly. So we're looking forward to the conference. Ian Hamilton will be here. He'll be preaching on Calvinism beyond the five points. Um, we will have lectures on, or sermons, rather, on each of the five points, as Dr. Piper said, from Dr. Piper, Dr. Curto, Dr. McGraw, uh, Dr. Jonathan Master of Cairn University, and Reverend Jeff Kingswood, a member of our board and ARP minister in Ontario. Dr. Danny Hyde will give the two historical lectures, give us some background to the Synod of Dort and the Canons of Dort and their impact and influence throughout Reformed history. And then one of our graduates, Pastor Phil Proctor, who was a missionary to Uganda for many years with the OPC and currently pastors an OPC congregation in Sterling, Virginia, will be preaching on the pastoral use of the doctrines of grace and then, if you're able to stick around for Thursday evening, we will have our 2019 Spring Scholarship Banquet in downtown Greenville at the Commerce Club, where Pastor Proctor will speak about how Greenville equipped him for missionary service. We'll have an international student, Fabio Lacerda de Moraes, uh, speak on his experience at Greenville so far, benefiting from our International Student Scholarship. Dr. Piper and I will speak, and we're still working on uh, lining up our last guest speaker. And if you can join us for that, we would love to have you. That will be a delightful evening. Zach, there'll be a pre-conference lecture on uh, Dort and worship, something that people don't know a lot about, and that will be uh, Tuesday at uh, 1030. Do you know a lot about that? Well, I've been studying it, so I'm going to give the lecture. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. And if you're a prospective student, we, as always, have our GPTS Explore on the Monday and Tuesday going into the conference. And if you register for that, as some have already done, you will get the rest of the conference free of charge. And for our prospective students in particular, we are committed to making it possible for you to come, um, and we are even 
willing to work on lining up lodging for you. If you get in touch with us early enough, we should be able to do that. So without further ado, let's dive into our questions. Our first question comes from a good friend of the seminaries, Mike Hutchinson of Hickson, Tennessee. Hi, Mike. Is the point of the sermon identical with the point of the text? Or put another way, how does the point of the sermon, the homiletical point, differ from the exegetical point of the sermon? Well, Hutch, if I correctly understand your question, I don't think there should be a conflict uh, here. Um, Let's start with uh, the purpose of the sermon should always be consistent with the purpose of the text. And I commend to our hearers Jay Adams' book on that very topic. Now, a text can have a major purpose and it can have sub-purposes. Uh, Take, for example, uh, Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. Uh, it's a passage we think about in terms of a, a remarkable beautiful description of the humiliation and exaltation of our Savior. But that's really the sub-purpose of the text. The text is really an exhortation uh, to humility in the life of the church, and Christ is set uh, before us as an example. But it would not be at all improper, as many do, to preach uh, uh, one or two sermons uh, on uh, what that text says about Christ. The application then surely should be consistent with Paul's exhortation uh, in the broader uh, section there. Uh, so that's the first thing. You must determine the purpose of the text and not just be willy-nilly to take anything you want to take out of a text or grab words and preach on three different phrases of the text, something like that. So the exegetical point is going to be consistent with the purpose of the text. So the sermon then uh, can have a purpose um, well, let's, let's take that uh, text, and you say your purpose then is to um, cause your, your hearers to uh, love and appreciate uh, the work of Christ as mediator in his humiliation. Um, then you would unpack that from the text by explaining the text uh, and... Uh, the purpose of your explanation would be consistent with the purpose of your sermon. So if I understand what you're saying, Hutch, that, that would be my answer. It's very helpful. If any of our listeners want to do a deep dive into homiletics, uh, I would encourage you to consider uh, coming in and visiting with us over a winter term for Intro to Homiletics with Breno Macedo. Or even if you're a pastor already and you're wanting to sharpen your skills, you're welcome to audit either of our homiletics practicums in the fall with Dr. McGraw or the spring with Dr. Piper. We have those every year. And uh, there are a number of books that we would recommend for homiletics in general and the, the putting together of a sermon. Um, we, we here tend to like Dabney's Evangelical Eloquence, published by the Banner of Truth, but we also like some more recent uh, publications, um, like The Heart is the Target by Murray Capel, and then I haven't yet read it, but it looks really good. And I've, I've taken a glance at it. Reformed Preaching from Dr. Beakey uh, looks very helpful. I'm looking forward to reading that this semester as well. Moving on to our next question from Zach Thomas of Clinton, Indiana. I'm assuming it's pronounced Clinton in Indiana and not Clinton like it is here in South Carolina. Can you give a breakdown of the strengths and weaknesses of scholasticism and humanism in the Reformed tradition? Well, Zach, uh, I think that that's a false dichotomy, and I would encourage you to uh, plow through uh, Dr. Mueller's works on Reformed scholasticism. The, uh, the Reformers uh, were all Renaissance-trained men, and thus would have been humanists in the sense of going back to the sources, becoming really well-grounded and in Greek and Hebrew and in the early Christian tradition through the early church fathers and whatever. They also knew uh, the medieval uh, writers as well. But this classicism itself is a method, uh, and it's a method that begins exegetically and carefully analyzes uh, uh, the text and then develops in a very uh, precise manner uh, the doctrines out of the text. So the, probably the most readily available work right now would be Turretin. But even Bavink would follow that method in his uh, 
systematic. So as I see it, humanism was more of the approach to the sources, and scholasticism then would be the methodology, and we highly commend that methodology. Zach, if you have any follow-up questions or you want to clarify what exactly you were asking and hoping to get at, please send us, uh, send us follow-up questions for February and March. Our next question comes from Chad Warner of Simpsonville, South Carolina. What does Luke 10.19 mean? In Luke 10.19, he gives us the text and the question very helpfully. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Well, Chad, it's always good to hear from you. I think uh, in the first place, we have to put the verse 19 in the context of verse 18, where Christ, uh, well, the 70s return in verse 17 from the preaching mission, and they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, verse 18, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. I believe that in the context, then, we're to take the serpents and the scorpions metaphorically in the first place for Satan and demonic powers so that uh, there is, through the preaching of the gospel, a victory uh, over demonic powers and a casting down of Satan. Now, for the early apostles, it also was a promise of uh, protection, um, not in every case, but often. That promise is repeated in the longer ending of Mark 16, uh, which some would not hold to be part of the original text. I do, and I think you see it fulfilled, for example, uh, in the Apostle Paul's uh, experience on Malta when he's getting firewood and a, a poisonous serpent comes out and bites him. He shakes it off. The people are waiting for him to drop dead, and he has no ill effects uh, from that. And so there was, in that first century, uh, some uh, supernatural deliverances as well. And I wouldn't separate the physical serpent from the spiritual serpent, as he's particularly attacking the uh, apostles. I uh, don't think, I think that this would not be a promise for us now uh, in the regular church age. And so the whole matter of snake handling would not be very profitable not be very profitable. <laughs> That's how you put that. <laughs> All right. Well, if you want to know more about snake handling, we do have an expert here at the seminary, Dr. Michael Morales, pastor at a Baptist church in East Tennessee, and at one point was brought up to a mountain church, and uh, and I don't know if, I forget if he actually witnessed the the snake handling thing begin, or if he just heard people talk about it, or saw that church featured on a documentary later. I forget the details, but if you want to know more about snake handling, we got an expert here at Greenville I Seminary. I don't think he'd care to be called an expert on snake handling. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right about that. Okay, we jest. Our next question comes from William Tejeda of San Antonio, Texas. Does Titus 2.6 require that an elder or minister have believing children? Should men refrain from seeking office if their children, specifically older ones, have not sought communicant membership? And what about current elders or ministers whose children may apostatize? Should they step down from office? Okay, uh, William, good to hear from you as always. The, the reference is Titus 1.6. Read it with 5 and 6. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation, that would be the children not accused of dissipation or rebellion. We need to break the question out in a number of ways. The first place, exactly what is Paul referring to here? And I believe that having children who believe is having children who are living in the home under covenant faithfulness. It doesn't mean that they're regenerate, but they are submitting to the authority of their parents, particularly if you compare this with what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and he does flesh it out, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So we don't have children at home that are being accused either of uh, drunkenness, drug addiction, sexual immorality, or openly rebellious against their parents. And we can go back to the law uh, and define that as well. These children who are in 
overt rebellion against their parents were to be brought to the elders or the priest of the church. So uh, it's not a requirement that a man's children be converted. Only God's sovereign over that. But it is a requirement that they live faithfully according to the covenant while they are at home. So if a man has children in rebellion in high school, uh, no, he should not be elected an elder. Uh, he needs to be encouraged to uh, deal then with, um, with his children. If he is in office and one of his children begins to act up who is still at home, then it would be a decision of the session, but I th think that he should voluntarily uh, take a leave of absence, uh, not just because he, he is unqualified, but because he needs to be able to devote himself to uh, that child. Now, a child that lives at home and manifests covenant faithfulness and then goes out either uh, into the workplace or college or later in life and demonstrates that he is not converted or he is backslidden, uh, there's no necessity that such a minister step down. Although he and the fellow elders should examine, is this a result of improper home management or is this the fact that the child was a, uh, a hypocrite uh, living a, a double life? And at that point, again, it should be the decision of of the elders, not the isolated decision of the man. But an, an older child, either in unbelief or rebellion, does not disqualify then an elder. It's a very sensitive subject. And, it is. And one that's well, my own, crucially important. My own son uh, was in rebellion when he went to, after he went to college, and for a number of years, about five years. Um, and I went to the board of the seminary, uh, spelled it out, and asked them, do you want me to... Uh, resign. And I think that's what a pastor should do, particularly that close to home. College is a bit closer to home than, say, a minister who has an adult child who manifests these things. Thank you for the question, William. Our next question comes from Mike Asher of Athens, Georgia. Slipping into error or heresy is often subtle. What are some specific features that you notice in PCA churches that indicate they are drifting away from our standards. He's speaking specifically about the PCA, but I think we could talk generally as well. Right, but he did ask about features in the PCA that we are observing, so that would be, I think, the basis of that. Uh, timely question. You know, Mike, it is a timely question, and I would encourage you and all of our hearers to read uh, Spurgeon's Downgrade Controversy. That's the 19th century, but it's the same kind of thing that he wrote against in the Baptist circles where he was at that time. Uh, I see two main problems uh, today in the PCA. Uh, one is a lusting after being culturally relevant. And anytime that an individual church, a pastor, a denomination takes its eyes off of Christ and the Scripture and starts looking at the world around and slowly accommodating or adjusting itself to that world or those standards to be. Oftentimes the motives are very good uh, to reach these people. Uh, I believe that is a clear step into uh, error and even heresy. Now, we have observed this in two ways, and I think a lot of people have failed to put these two things together. We first have observed this in our PCA churches in the approach to worship. Uh, people fail to realize, and you go to Calvin uh, to see some of the statements that he made, the relationship of false worship to error and spiritual apostasy is clearly demonstrated in Scripture. And when we have allowed uh, the church to bring in the world into its worship in order to appeal to the world, again, often very fine motives. We've actually harmed the church. So what does the second commandment say? That God says the first off, if you don't worship him according to his revelation and that only, you hate him. And uh, secondly, that it is going to affect the church because he's going to visit that sin, not in punishment, but in giving people over to it to the third and fourth generation. So when the church 
has brought the world in, uh, everything from uh, worldly music to ballet or jazz dancing and uh, uh, skits and drama and monologues. And fog machines. Yeah, fog machines, uh, zip lines into the pulpit. <laughs> I mean, it's absurd. But uh, it's not simply uh, vaguely humorous to some. It is destroying the church. And it's the attitude behind it as well. All of it is we have to cater to a people that are used to consuming entertainment, and so we have to perform right. for them. And a lot of times it's very subtle. It doesn't look like fog machines and praise bands and drama and skits and, and dance. A lot of times it can just be that that vast separation between the people up front and the people in the pew. Even subtle things like lighting. I have a church where they dim the lights when you pray. You know, that's obviously a, an emotional manipulation. Maybe they don't intend that, so I shouldn't say obviously. It is an emotional manipulation. So that's one way, uh, Mike, that this is happening. The other now is, and I think they're directly related, uh, and that is we are now uh, seeing the church acculturized, particularly in the areas of um, social justice and uh, racial, uh, gender distinctions, homosexuality, uh, transgender, all these things, uh, where we have a number of uh, PCA ministers who are unwilling to preach against these things. We've had a PCA church in um, St. Louis host a Revoice conference. Just look up Revoice on line and you'll find out about that. They're going to have a follow-up one. Uh, we had another PCA church that was going to have a lesbian speaker come in and talk about how to be sympathetic, uh, which they now have canceled. Um, uh, but uh, that is the cutting edge of the avant-garde of the PCA. And it is, we see it with women uh, in the pulpit women exhorting, women ministering communion, women reading in Scripture and leading in prayer. None of that's biblical. None of that's ever been practiced uh, in the Reformed churches until the last 20 years. But we're trying to accommodate the culture. So that's, that's the first slip, the accommodation in worship and then in other practices. The second uh, springs out of what has been called good faith subscription which was introduced into the PCA and voted on by the General Assembly. And to do away with our subscription vows, uh, where we're supposed to subscribe to holding to the doctrines of the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms, recognizing there can be what we would call scruples, minor differences exegetically, um, or how something's expressed, but holding to every single doctrine in its totality, as it is set forth in the standards. So good faith subscription got rid of that and made levels of uh, subscription where a man has no uh, exceptions whatsoever. He has some that might be semantic or he might call those scruples. He has some that must be registered as exceptions, but they don't attack the vitals of the system of theology. And then there are those that attack the vitals. Well, that's a very specious distinction. But in the long run, and I've thought a lot about this just in the last few weeks, this is the lazy man's approach. We'll say lazy, if not deceitful as well, to changing our standards. So if the Presbyteries continue to let men come in, and of course the, the ones that we're hearing most often today have to do with creation, uh, with... Um, the recreation clause with respect to the Sabbath and images of Christ. Now, think about it. If the majority of our presbyteries are allowing men to come in holding these exceptions, what have we done to our confession of faith? We have changed it. These men will vote for other men to hold to that. Uh, and uh, without ever going through the very rigorous procedure that we have in our Constitution to change the confession. We're simply lazy, deceitful, whatever, allowing the church to change the confession. An alarm needs to be sounded about this. Uh, I think it's unethical. I've really good faith subscription is anything but good faith. 
It is an end run around our standards and is effectively changing them without going through the procedure. This is only going to lead to a continuing uh, watering down of our standards. Thus, we shall more and more go into error and even subtle heresy. Well, Mike, uh, if you have any follow-ups on specifics going on in the PCA, please send them our way. We, we do emphatically encourage those who are concerned about the direction of the PCA to recognize a few things. First of all, that the General Assembly is far from being a representative body of the PCA. Probably most of our churches do not participate on a regular basis. And if you'd like to see the General Assembly be more representative, then mobilize your ruling elders and urge them to make a point of attending General Assembly, even at the extreme cost that it is. Uh, this is important if you take Presbyterianism seriously and believe that it is the, the biblical form of church government, and if you're going to continue in the PCA, to be involved at every level of the church. And um, pray. I mean, really Without prayer, without seeking the Lord's help in this, all of our other efforts will be in vain. But uh, this is why good seminaries exist for the sake of the church, and this is why many other uh, grassroots organizations are popping up to uh, encourage faithful churches to persevere and to make connections with one another so that uh, we can preserve the witness of the PCA as a confessional denomination. Moving on to our next question. This comes from an anonymous listener in Stockholm, Sweden, and he asks, in 1 Peter 5, 13, the apostle refers to, quote, my son Mark, end quote. Now, we know that Peter has a mother-in-law and thus a wife. I I've tried to find a commentary or monograph that builds on these texts to give greater definition to the members of Peter's immediate family. Supposing Mark to be Peter's biological son, would that then indicate to us that Peter's wife's name was Mary? Well, thank you, uh, listener in Stockholm. I had the pleasure of being in your wonderful country a few weeks ago. We have a, a good friend who lives uh, in a city about an hour from Stockholm, uh, desperate for reform fellowship. So if you'll write us, I'll be glad to put you in touch uh, with her. Uh, I think that what, we, what you have here is a misunderstanding of the language uh, Peter is referring to John Mark as his spiritual son. John Mark was probably in Jerusalem and early on affected by uh, Peter's ministry. Uh, he then went with Barnabas and Paul on the first missionary journey. Uh, he chickened out, went home. On the second journey, Barnabas wanted to rehabilitate him and take him. Paul said no. That led to an equitable division amongst them, Barnabas took Mark. Paul later praises John Mark, and he works with Paul, but he's also with Peter, and he was with Peter probably in Rome, uh, and in fact wrote the Gospel of Mark. Tradition has it because the church asked him to record the preaching of Peter. Now we see similar language that Paul will use uh, for Timothy in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 2, to Timothy, my, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace. So it's quite a common um, thing for uh, pastors uh, or apostles to refer to these men, just as some of us who are older um, in ministry in the church or even in the seminary. I think of some of these men as sons, like Zach. Call him son sometimes. So that's what's going on there. Yes, Peter was married, and from that we learn that uh, the, the qualification for a pastor being uh, celibate is uh, uh, contrary to Scripture. But that's all we know is he had a mother-in-law, and then Paul says in 2 Corinthians that they could take their wives with them on their apostolic trips. But no, John Mark was not Peter's uh, biological son. He was Peter's spiritual son. Moving on to our next question from Mark Bebout, or Bebo. I, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. He's of El Dorado, Illinois. He asks this question, If God knows all things, and he knew Satan would fall, then why did he create him? Mark must be related to the uh, uh, brother-in-law of the man that 
who'd been corresponding with about seminary and his father uh, is at Newburn and wrote me. Uh, so Mark, first off, why does God know all things? Well, God knows all things for two reasons. Yes, God is omniscient, which means he knows every possibility, every contingency, everything. Uh, but more importantly, he has foreordained uh, whatsoever comes to pass. And so in our Confession of Faith, chapter 3, paragraph 1, in fact, in my Confession Reader, this was the paragraph today, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So we affirm with Scripture that God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. We, he's done so willingly and freely and unchangeably. And then those caveats, he's not the author of sin. And that means he's not the tempter uh, to sin. Um, and he has not, his decree doesn't impinge on liberty or contingency of second causes, which is simply the cause and effect things that either are planned and people or things or agents or that we would call accidents. But uh, so with that in mind, then the Bible does teach uh, that God has uh, foreordained the fall. Just as he foreordained the most serious criminal event that has ever occurred in the history or ever shall occur in the history of the human race, and that is, in fact, the crucifixion of our Savior. As Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put into death. So it was God's pleasures, God's preordained plan that Christ be crucified. We know he was crucified before the foundation of the earth. God chose us in him. Uh, and so he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, but in such a way as not to absolve the parties from their guilt and their role. Uh, godless men uh, crucified the Savior. He said to uh, warn Judas, you know, woe to the man. Um, there's double condemnation for such a one like Judas, which is a warning to us who would play games with God or be hypocrites in the church. So God, in his wisdom, determined to save men through his son and not through uh, a covenant of perfect obedience by a man. Because at the end of the day, God gets more glory to himself uh, through this wonderful and remarkable plan of redemption. And so, yes, it was God's will that Satan and Adam fell. God did not provoke them to fall. God withheld grace that he was not obligated to give them, and thus they fell. But uh, it was God's plan. Uh, but it was God's plan always, when he does these things, to accomplish good, holy, godly purposes, and great glory for himself. The next question comes from Jonathan Price of Creston, North Carolina. It's, it's more than just one question. He actually gives us a series of interrelated questions dealing with covenant theology for a bit of a discussion here. Should I just read them as I work through them? If you prefer to do that, you can do that. I don't have to pose them to you. Okay. Jonathan, uh, these are very thoughtful questions, and I appreciate your asking them. Uh, question... Uh, one is, why are there not at least three administrations of the covenant of grace? Now, let me uh, ex explain some terms for our hearers and encourage you to look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 7, that deals with uh, two covenants, the covenant of works uh, made with Adam uh, before the fall. That's paragraph 2 that he broke, to which I just referred in the previous answer and the covenant of grace uh, that uh, God made uh, with Christ and his elect in him. 
So there's only one covenant of grace. But the covenant of grace was administered progressively through the unfolding history of redemption. And there are, in fact, a number of administrations of the covenant of grace. So we have the Adamic administration in the garden after the fall, the Noahic administration, the Abrahamic administration, the Mosaic administration, the Davidic administration, and then the new covenant, the fullness of all this coming together in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you ask, should not the 400 years from Abraham to Moses count as one? Well, they do. They are an administration, but they're not a different covenant. So they are the uh, third administration of the covenant of grace. Uh, and why did the administration of the covenant of grace go from a light burden under Abraham to a heavy burden under Moses back to a light burden under Christ? Well, the, um, in the wisdom of God, he's training his church. So Abraham, and in each administration of the covenant of grace, and if anybody's interested, you can actually get my lectures from the Man in Sin course on uh, the covenant and the unity of the covenant as well. Um, every covenant administration carried with it everything from the previous administration and expanded it. And so Noah expanded on Adam, Abraham expanded on Noah, Moses then expanded on the Abrahamic covenant, and particularly for the protection of the people of God. And so Paul will use the language that what God is doing is treating the people like minor children. So you've got little children at home, and you have a lot more rules for them than when they become teenagers. And they need those rules for their protection. And so rather than think of a heavier burden, we're thinking about protecting the church uh, against temptation and dangers in her uh, infancy. Uh, moreover, uh, to picture Christ and his relationship to the church. So that's uh, your first question then. It's one covenant of grace with these various administrations, each one keeping everything that was previous but adding to it. Now your second question, according to the Westminster Confession of Faith, the covenant of grace did not substantively change throughout redemptive history. Let me read uh, from the Confession, paragraph 5, the same chapter. This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and the time of the gospel. So in other words, under the Old Testament dispensation, law referring to all those administrations and the New Testament dispensation. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and the other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation and is called the Old Testament. Under the gospel, when Christ the substance was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. So that's the background of your first remark. According to the Webster Confession, the covenant of grace did not substantively change throughout redemptive history. So then you ask, can we say that the Old Testament sacrifices and Passover have the same exact power as the sacraments like the Lord's Supper? I ask this because the Westminster Confession says that in all things and in the Old Testament were just as efficacious as their New Testament counterparts as they are both drawing upon the same substance. 
Well, you've misunderstood the last part of that paragraph 5 in your uh, assumption there. Uh, What it says in paragraph 5 that were for the time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect. So there's not the same power. They are particularly... Baptism had the same significance as circumcision, but uh, it furthermore signifies union with Christ and a completed uh, work of, of redemption, which the Passover could not, uh, our circumcision could not. And the same that the Passover looked back to redemption to celebrate it and predicted Christ but now the Lord's Supper actually allows us to remember what Christ did, but also to feed on him spiritually. So the standards don't say that they were of the same efficacy, but they were old covenant sacraments were efficacious uh, in their time for conversion and sanctification. Then your third question, in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 9, Paul calls the Old Testament a ministry of death and condemnation. How can an administration of the covenant of grace be called a ministry of death and condemnation? Now, you've got to realize that Paul will use uh, the covenant in the Old Testament in different ways. And here he's talking about divorced from Christ. There's nothing in the Mosaic law, particularly if you look at some commentators, the Ten Commandments, uh, that can save They are for the regenerate. They are to drive a person to a realization of his need of Christ. But by themselves, divorced from Christ, even though there's a glory to them, uh, they are a ministry of death and condemnation with respect to the unconverted, with respect to those who would try to earn uh, salvation uh, by them. So Paul will also say that they have a glory. It's just a less glory. So you say, I'm curious as how to someone holding the Westminsterian view of the covenants could reconcile this with his or her belief that the substance of the two covenants never changed. Well, I hope as I've worked my way through this uh, that uh, I've been able to help you um, with this, uh, Jonathan, and we'll be glad to hear follow-up questions from you. Jonathan, thank you for introducing a not just a question, but a really thoughtful conversation that is crucially important. I was speaking with my best friend this past week, Dr. Piper. He, he attends a non-denominational church in Philadelphia area. Uh, we were uh, really as close as brothers for many years in, in high school and even into college. And he's getting into Reformed Baptist covenant theology, coming out of a more Calvinistic Baptist background, and we were talking about some of these, these matters this week as he's beginning to really uh, more thoroughly and deeply investigate covenant theology. So this is something that's perennially important. Our next question comes from Lucas Salgado of Recife, Brazil. And Lucas asks, did the apostles make a mistake when they chose uh, Matthias to be Judas's substitute? Or should we say that the correct number of apostles was 13 and not 12? My question's based on 1 Corinthians 15 in Acts chapter 1. Well, Lucas, uh, I think they did not make a mistake. I think they were led by the Spirit, and you'll see that role of the uh, 12 apostles worked out even in uh, Revelation. Uh, And I think Acts 15 actually explains uh, this relationship. When Paul discusses the resurrection, he then says... He was buried, verse 4, raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then the twelve. Now notice that, then the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have been asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And Paul, in other places, refers to himself as apostle extraordinaire. So when it says he appeared to the twelve, we know then that when the the qualifications for the Judas replacement in Acts chapter 1 are given, it had to be one who was with them uh, throughout the public ministry of Christ. So he says it's uh, verse 21 beginning with, or 22, beginning with the baptism of John till the day he was taken up from us 
one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, it's to that that Paul refers. Uh, and so that's the 12. He was a witness of the resurrection, and he was considered part of the 12. The apostle was considered then as the apostle extraordinaire, the apostle to the Gentiles. Thank you for the question, Lucas. I, you know, I've thought about that myself, too. Not necessarily in those terms, but, you know, is it 13? Is it 12? What is, how do we parse this out? So that was helpful. Nathan Melker of Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, asks, In what manner does affirming the general equity of the Old Testament moral law, as per the Westminster standards, not result in something looking a lot like theonomy? Well, Nathan, uh, in the first place, we have to be careful what is meant by theonomy. Um, I never just answer that question if I'm asked about it or about myself. The word itself uh, simply means... Uh, uh, the law of God, uh, and all of us who are biblical Christians want our lives to be governed by the law of God. Uh, I think the great di difference is what the, what the writers meant by general equity is that the laws themselves are not to be uh, binding. And we're talking about judicial laws. So the Bible does not require anybody to be put to death but a murderer. The uh, other civil sanctions, and this is normally where this comes to play, or into play, uh, were wise and good, and they were for the Old Covenant Church as a nation, a people of God. Uh, the church now is not a nation. Uh, we are the people of God. And any of those, uh, none of those laws, then, do we say are binding on the civil magistrate in terms of the punishment. Now, should the moral law of God be the basis of our civil laws, if at all possible? Yes. Uh, I don't think that's theonomy. That's the moral law of God being applied. But the judicial law particularly had to do with the unique laws and the punishment of those laws. Now, if you look at Calvin in the very last chapter of the Institutes, I think that's where he addresses um, uh, the principle, and, and Calvin's principle was that if in the law of the nations certain things had death penalty, then uh, it's wise to apply uh, the civil sanctions there. It wouldn't be wrong uh, if our government uh, put to death rapists, adulterers. We're talking about those who are hardened in their sin, who refuse to repent, homosexuals. So I'll just put it out there so we get some black. Um, that uh, it would not be wrong uh, kidnappers, if the government did that. Man-stealers. Yeah, but the government's not required uh, to do that. The other thing is, there should be room for grace. Uh, and so uh, a man commits adultery uh, and repents and is restored to his wife, then he wouldn't be put to death. What about the murderer who, as far as we can tell, repents sincerely and fully? I mean, he can't bring the person back to life. But does the law of God require us, in yes. order to be just, to sentence him to death, yes. regardless of his repentance? Yes, that's a right into the Noahic Covenant, which includes not just the church, but all of mankind. And um, repentance doesn't matter there. Hmm. I mean, for his eternal salvation, yes. No, we're talking about, no, but you didn't ask that. that. You that asked temporal, about, should he be put to yeah, death? That, so the civil. there was the lady, when George Bush was governor in Texas, that... Uh, repented, and Christians started bombarding uh, the governor that he should uh, pardon her now, and uh, he said, I'm glad she's converted, but she must die, and that would be the proper response. That's justice. So, but, um, so then the principle of equity would be, in the first place, uh, these, these crimes that had serious sanctions in the state should all be matters of serious church discipline, even excommunication in the church. So there's a principle of equity. If you put someone to death for adultery and they don't repent and you put them to death and you excommunicate them if they're impenitent, you excommunicate them for any of the sins that carried the uh, uh, death penalty, and not only those sins, but uh, any of the sins that carried the death penalty. Uh, and then there are princi moral principles that, for example, the parapet, uh, which is a railing around the roof of the house, that's because the roof of the house was the patio. 
And thus the principle there is you protect life on your property. So principle of equity would be a requirement, which we have, in, I think, in every state. If you have a swimming pool, it must uh, be sufficiently secured so that a child uh, could not inadvertently, a child from the neighborhood inadvertently wander into uh, the swimming pool. So uh, I hope that helps you. Uh, and I think we, there's a lot more work that, that we should be doing in ethics on the whole matter of the principle of equity. I think we've got sidetracked uh, with this discussion of should the church be trying to reform the government? Should the government be compelled to have these civil sanctions? Rather than let's look and see uh, what are the principles that are there. I've mentioned some, but I believe there's a plethora of others as well. Well, Dr. Piper, that brings us up on our time. I want to thank our listeners for submitting these excellent questions and encourage our listeners to keep them coming. And especially as we get closer to general assembly season, not just for the PCA, but for the OPC, the ARP, and all the other wonderful denominations we serve, I'm sure there will be church-specific questions that we could handle and address and help ruling elders and teaching elders think through the matters that they're faced with in their uh, various communions. Dr. Piper, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Zach. We've got some remaining good questions. Lord willing, we'll be back on a, a monthly rotation now uh, for this school year. We'll try to let you know ahead of time for those that want to listen live as well. But you can, Zach's going to tell you right now how you can hear the podcast. You can hear the podcast at Sermon Audio on Anchor FM at iTunes and your favorite podcast streaming services. And of course, many of you probably have seen the notice of this podcast up on social media. So if you're not following us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram yet, please do so in order to be kept in the loop. Well, can't they access it through our website as well? Yeah, gpts.edu slash gpts-podcast. Very good. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Zach. Thank you. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.